guys. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. Got a special episode for you guys today. This is a very cool one. Uh, yeah, it's really cool. Uh, Magnus Walker, we did a one-on-one -on -one interview with him. So I spent about an hour. I know it's a long episode, but I think it's worth it. I think that it's it worth is. the squeeze to sit around and listen to. Um, you know, everybody kind of knows who Magnus Walker is. A lot right. of people that listen to this podcast are going to know. And I remember when I first saw the film, the Urban Outlaw film, come out. And I'm like... Who is this guy? <laughs> what is this guy with the dreadlocks and the and the rock look and the accent and the little touches on the cars? I didn't really get it. Yeah. You know, and it took me a long time to just kind of be like, whatever, that guy can do his own thing. But actually interviewing him and spending some time with him really changed my perspective on where he comes from. Yeah. Because, you know, on social media and everything like that, when you look at you just see this this image of people and it's whether it's a projected image or not it's not really who people are sure and if you even if you look at my instagram or whatever it's it, that's not the whole story of who i am as a human being no certainly it not. does have anything to do with where i came from you don't know anything so we spent some time with magnus a lot of time kind of finding out where he comes from and i really think if you're a fan of cars and a fan of interesting people you'll really really like this interview yeah, absolutely but before we get to that, what have we got? Yeah, let's take a moment to mention our sponsor, WeatherTech. They are, of course, best known for their amazing floor mats. WeatherTech floor liners are laser measured and custom fit to protect the front, back, and even up the sides of your car's footwells. They're great for coming winter months here and protecting your car's interior from slush and all those nasty road salt stains. WeatherTech floor liners are actually available in four different colors. You got black, gray, tan, and for some vehicles, it comes in cocoa as well. You can also pair them with a cargo or a trunk liner. And when either floor liner or the trunk liner get dirty, they can easily be removed and washed. WeatherTech also offers detailing and cleaning products, not only to make sure your floor liners stay clean, but your entire car or truck as well. They're made right here in the U.S., and they're the perfect tool to protect your investment. So head over to WeatherTech.com to see what products are right for you. We also have a new giveaway for the month of November, Chris. You can enter to win two $50 WeatherTech gift cards at weathertech.com slash overcrest awesome make sure you hop on that contest and get some uh, get some free money all right let's uh let's get right into it let's talk to magnus walker hey chris mr magnus walker how's it going man pretty good really? yeah very good i figured we'd run across and cross paths at some point i'm glad we could finally make it happen yeah yeah i'm uh, actually just here in new york city believe it or not yeah, it seems you're like you're on one coast or the other. You'll have to come over here and visit us in the Midwest at some point. I've got some cool roads to show you. That's what I hear. That's good. How are you doing? This? <laughs> very good. Very good. It's uh, not too often I get to drive in rush hour, so it's a real pleasure to come in. <laughs> That's what I call commuting, not driving. People always ask me about driving to work, which is something I don't actually do. Time is an important thing. The older you get, the more you realize time's important. You know, it's, I guess it's cliche, but, you know, I've turned 52 and I'm realizing, you know, it's uh, it's not such a cliche. There's actually quite a lot of truth to it because time does move really, really quick. You know, I mean, look, we're almost in November, right? It's like the year just sort of whizzed by really, really quickly. You know, the older I get, the faster everything goes. And you start realizing that all the moments that you have our finette, you know, we're all only going to be here for a certain amount of time and spending them how you want is really important. Yeah, for sure. That's what I call memorable moments. That's kind of my mantra, truth be told, make the most out of every moment. And my whole theory is, you know, do it today because tomorrow may not come. This I know is a fact. So, uh, 
I'm all about making the most of opportunity, and I tend to say yes more than I say no to things. Or like the interview with you and podcasts, and you know, it's kind of enabled me to travel around the world and do stuff that I enjoy, and you know, experience new things and new people. Well, yeah, a lot of that comes with risk, though. I mean, you take risks when you you know you do that with your life. A lot of people don't want to take those risks, and one of the reasons why I um, I push people to drive, and I'm sure you push people to drive, is it gets a lot of people out of their comfort zone, and uh, for me, driving becomes kind of like meditation, and um, I wish more people would get out. They, they, I think people kind of fear getting out of their comfort zone with driving and going places, and I wish more people would take advantage of that. Yeah, that's kind of been my motto, you know, my little tagline, get out and drive. I guess Honda's got let's go places. You know, for me, you know, it's a journey. Life's a journey. My journey started when I left Sheffield, England in 1986, so, you know, that's, what, 33 years ago. Now, where's Sheffield in relation to London? How Where is that? Sheffield's 160 miles north of London. It's a former industrial city famous for steel. It would be like Pittsburgh here in the States. Sheffield actually invented the process of manufacturing stainless steel. It was a steel town basically built on seven hills with rivers going through it, but they've uh, sort of been manufacturing steel for hundreds of years and that was the industry there and it was everything from steel for the auto industry to specialty steel surgical steel and they were world famous for cutlery knives and forks and things like that so you know a former industrial town that by the 70s and early 80s you know the steel industry had really declined it had all gone overseas cheaper imports and obviously ended up with a repressed depressed uh, city with a high unemployment rate But Sheffield was a great place to grow up. It was a musical city. You know, I sort of claimed the fame back in the 60s was Joe Cocker. Then in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s, it was Def Leppard. That was my rock band. And then bands like Pulp, the Arctic Monkeys. And in the 80s, the big music scene in England really was sort of new wave music, star and heavy metal. And Sheffield had, even though I didn't like them, the big bands that were from Sheffield were Human League, ABC, Cabaret, Voltaire, Heaven 17. So London always sort of got the claim to fame because everyone went to London to get a record deal and, you know, then sort of base themselves in London. But there were sort of four major cities. London, obviously, was the big one. Do you then think you that, had Manchester. You think Sheffield, kind of like the, the economy there and everything that was going on is kind of what gave birth to that type of music coming from there? Oh, yeah, for sure. You know, I talk about I was into heavy metal music. You know, the steel industry is a noisy, dirty, sort of smelly type of industry. You know, I think it it just sort of breeds those type of characters. Then you have a city that's, you know, sort of fallen on its luck. You know, it sort of breeds resentment, probably breeds rebellious attitude. Um, You know, so for sure, I think where you're born, where you're brought up really sort of determines your early life and your early character. And for me as a kid, I was into a couple of things, you know, running was one of them. And I became pretty good at that middle distance cross country running and then heavy metal music. That was my thing. So I didn't realize until a later date, but I think those two really sort of define my character. And, you know, that's how I am 35, 40 years later. You know, the running, I, I ran a lot from the age of 8, 9 up till probably 14, 15. By the time I got to 14, 15, you could go to the pub and drink, and that sort of killed the, the cross-country athletics running career. But I, I'll say one pivotal point is having a little bit of success at an early age, and that just gave me a lot of motivation and a lot of drive. And I remember back 
probably in 1980, no, 1978, I was 11. I got a little certificate. I won something, some local race. And at the time, there was this athlete called Sebastian Cohen. He went on to be an Olympic champion, world record holder. Anyway, signed my little certificate. Just said, well done, Sebastian Cohen. That was all it said. But that was like a big pat on the back. Because, you know, my relationship with my dad growing up wasn't necessarily super supportive. And I think that's probably a common thing. But having someone that I looked up to and admired who was outside of the family just say one word or two words, well done, that sort of made me really feel like, okay, you know, I can follow this this sort of passion that I have. You know, and that was a passion early on for running. But I think what it, it did for me is running cross-country, running athletics, it's not a team sport really like a football, basketball, baseball. You know, so I think that sort of, gave me that what I still call a bit of a lone wolf type of attitude of do things on my own. And I still have that to this day. I think the heavy metal music I listened to just gave me that rebellious attitude. And ultimately, you know, I left Sheffield when I was 19. That was sort of my first big, big, big adventure going to America. I didn't know anyone here in the States. So even a small industrial city and going to America, that was the first taste of what I call ultimate freedom. Right. I worked on a camp with kids actually north of Detroit in Michigan. So, you know, I tell this story all the time, but what that represented was no one telling me, hey, cut your hair and get a real job. So I took a trailways bus from New York to Detroit, spent this summer on the summer camp and took a bus from Why Detroit did you go to America to in the first place? What was the, how did that happen? What encouraged that for you? Uh, well, it was something that was unplanned. My whole life has been unplanned. The sort of long, long version of the story. I left school at 15 with not much education. Bummed around on the dole in Sheffield doing odd jobs, mostly construction, from the age of like 16 to 17. And that was, you know, mixing plaster and filling skips and cleaning bricks and just doing general labor work, I think, for 10 pounds a day. So I did that for a year, still living at home. And you got to remember, I don't have a car. I'm going everywhere on the bus. I'm a teenager. Well, when I got to 17, I went to college for a year and did this thing called a City and Girls Leisure and Recreation Study, believe it or not. And it was sort of, it was like an athletic type thing. They taught, um, you know, football and soccer and coaching and stuff like that, first aid. And anyway, long story short, I'm working on a summer camp is what got me to America. So essentially at the time, it was 86, so I was 19. So I ended up working on an um, underprivileged inner city summer camp. I guess these two types of sort of rich kid camp and then the, the poor kid inner city camp. You know, mine was run by this St. Vincent de Paul Society. So essentially it was inner city kids from Detroit who would go out to the camp basically to get away from whatever environment they were in. So, you know, to be honest, for me it was a real culture shock, you know, because Everything I just told you about growing up in Sheffield, um, a summer camp north of Detroit in 1986 was the complete opposite. For example, you know, I'm listening to heavy metal, Black Sabbath, all this type of stuff. Everyone on the summer camp pretty much listening to Run DMC and LL Cool J. <laughs> so for me, it was, and I'd, never, and I'd never gone to, like, summer camps don't exist in England. I guess in America, it's relatively common. But in England, unless you join, like, the Scouts or something like that, you know, there's no experience that's remotely similar to a summer camp. So to me, I was completely out of my element. You spoke about it earlier, about getting people to drive. You know, this was way before I was driving. But, you know, it was like 
a completely different environment that I was out of my element. And it's where I became what I call an adaptive swimmer. And by that, I mean it was survival, sink or swim. You know, it was a culture shock to me, but it was a great learning experience of how to adapt to a foreign environment and how to sort of integrate yourself to a, a new culture and new people. And so for me, that was a, a, a big learning lesson. I didn't really realize it at the time. When I got there, it was like, oh, fuck, where am I? I'm in the middle of nowhere. But, you know, the kids would come for like 10 days and then we'd have two days off before the next encampment rotated around. So I'd go into Detroit, and this is 1986 Detroit. And I realized Detroit was a little bit similar to Sheffield. You know, Detroit, the Motor City, former industrial town, obviously had, had a lot of uh, people leaving the city, a lot of urban decay, and a lot of unemployment. But it was also a musical city, just like Sheffield. So, you know, Detroit had, you know, MC5, the Stooges, Iggy, Alice Cooper, you know, had the whole Motown element. So there were quite a lot of similarities between Detroit and Sheffield. But uh, as a 19-year-old, it was just a, a fun new experience and a fun new city to explore. So that was how I came to America. And then I took a trailways bus from Detroit to L.A., which you look on the map, you can go diagonally in a straight line, but the trailways bus doesn't go that way. You know, It went all the way down to Memphis and across the country. And then I arrived in L.A. This is a pretty interesting story. I arrived in L.A. at Union Station, you know, three days later, at like 6 a.m. with a huge sort of duffel bag. And I had this vision of L.A. because I used to watch a lot of American TV. You know, so it was everything from Duke to Hazard to Chips, the Rockford Files, the, all these shows which were sort of set in and around L.A. So I had a certain picture of L.A. It was like what I'd seen on the TV. It was Baywatch meets Guns N' Roses and Motley Crue. Well, when you arrive at Union Station in downtown L.A. on a trailways bus at 6 a.m. in the morning, that's not the LA you see. So that was also a big culture shock. Sure, I imagine I that the contrast to... between Detroit and Los Angeles, once you saw both of the cities, was was that enough to move you towards LA seeing? I mean, what was it about LA that, obviously you stayed there, what was it the about goal, that? Well, the goal was always LA. LA was sex, drugs, rock and roll. Everything I was into music-wise at that time was LA. So at that time, circa 1986, it's Guns N' Roses. They're just about to break as the biggest rock band in the world the next year, 1987. But all the music I was listening to, Poison, Motley Crue, all these L.A. bands, they were L.A. bands. They were in L.A. What was your plan, though? What was was your plan for going there? You said, I'm going to L.A. Was it just like, Uh, no plan, let's just do this? You've got to remember, I'm 19. You don't need a plan (laughs) You just need this sort of fuck you attitude of L.A. has to be better than Sheffield. Right. And I'm not going back to Sheffield. So uh, my cousin was with me. He'd sort of flown in from Switzerland. We did this American trip together, at least this trip to L.A. and California. So the initial plan was we're going to go to California. We're going to go to L.A. for two weeks. So we took the trailways bus from Detroit to L.A., arrived at Union Station, and the first stop was where are we going to stay? We hadn't booked a hotel. This is pre-cell phone. There's no internet. You can't get out your iPhone and, you know, hoteltonight.com doesn't exist. But we'd done it old school. We'd got the uh, the Forders Guide to LA and we'd realized you can stay at a youth hostel for like £8 a night or $8 a night. So what we did was we took a bus, which was the first LA experience from being on a you know, a coach for three days from Detroit to L.A. We get a bus from downtown to Hollywood Boulevard to go stay at this youth hostel, 
right up, right in the middle of Hollywood Boulevard. It's like Hollywood and Gower or Cahuenga or one of these streets. And we check into this $9 a night hotel, uh, not hotel, um, hostel, and uh, basically started exploring Hollywood Boulevard. And as a 19-year-old coming from England looking like I should be in Poison or Motley Crew, you just fit in because everyone looked like that. So you make friends really, really quick. You know, you see flyers to a club. You go to a nightclub straight away. It's all heavy metal rock and roll. How would you describe um, the Magnus Walker of 19 years old if I was going to meet him? Is he any different than you are today, or is it kind of just you evolved from that person? Well, back then I don't have a beard. I'm in my glam rock days. I look like I should be, you know, in Poison, Motley Crue, Hanoi Rocks. So I'm still rock and roll. His a bit shorter. It's all spiky peroxide, teeth, back comb crimped. You know, uh-huh. that's the look back then. But back then, 1986, the whole of L.A. looks like that. And what I loved about L.A. then is the same thing. I even love it more today, 33 years later. And I say this all the time, but I'll say it right now. Whatever you want to do in life can be done in L.A. And by that, I mean if you want to be a snowboarder, a skateboarder, a surfer, a movie star, a rock star, a car designer, aerospace engineer, there's the opportunity to do that in L.A. And by that, I mean there's an infrastructure, there's already an industry there. I didn't realize that at the time when I was 19 years old. Back then, it was just like, hey, this is better than Sheffield. And to me, failure would be going back to Sheffield. And I actually did go back. I stayed in L.A. for probably August, September, October, November. So three, four months, I overstayed my visa. And I ended up going back for Christmas 1986. And that was like, wow. Going back to Sheffield, I remember, because I flew back on a one-way ticket to London, took a train to Sheffield. I couldn't sit down on the train. So just on this long flight, 12-hour flight from L.A. to London, 10-hour, whatever it was. Then got on a three-hour three train ride. The train was so packed, I couldn't sit down. And I'm like, by this time, I'd just turned 20. And that, to me, was like really depressing, because I'd had this taste of freedom, which was L.A., three, four months of just doing whatever I wanted, having a boatload of fun. And then I went back to Sheffield, and it was super depressing. Moved back in with my mum and dad, and that was fairly, it was like, fuck, I'd tasted freedom, and now I'm back home in Grim Sheffield. So I vowed that I would go back the next year, and I went back in June of 1987. Basically repeated the same experience I just told you, worked on a summer camp in New Jersey this time, which was even better because I'd go to New York every 10 days. And then went back to L.A. in 87, like late August of 87, and literally never went back to England since then. So, so how did you start your – where did the fashion designer thing come from? How did you start doing that? How did that start? Well, everything in my life happened organically. So I moved back to L.A. in 87. I kept in touch, pen pal, writing letters with some of these friends in bands that I'd met the prior year. So 87, 88, 89, that two, three-year run, I'm just bumming around in L.A., hanging out with guys in bands, not working. And you also got to remember, a little bit of money went a long way 32 years ago because you're couch hopping, you're sleeping on someone's floor, you're not paying rent, you don't have any expenses, you're getting into clubs for free, people are giving you drinks because you're new kid in town, flavor of the moment type thing. So I did that probably for two, three years until that novelty wore off. You know, it was kind of two, three years in, okay, you know, I'm 22-ish, 23, this is getting a little bit mundane. So I ended up going down the boardwalk in Venice, and this is the long answer to your question. I'll probably give you a lot of long answers to questions. That's all right. That's what this format is for. 
it's, you know, I'm just going to ramble on. <laughs> so there was an English guy working at one of these stalls on the boardwalk, walking um, second from the gap. And basically the guy goes, hey, are you English? I said, yeah. And he said, do you want a job? And I said, sure, because I hadn't really been working. It was just part-time stuff I was doing, and money was kind of running a bit low. So he hired me basically to be a heckler, which is someone who would stand in front of the booth and shout out, you know, step right up, don't be shy, come on in, get your, you know, one for five, two for ten, three for twelve type of thing. So I had this part-time job on the boardwalk on the weekend, believe it or not, selling seconds from the Gap, sweatshirts and <laughs> yeah. little beach stuff. Did you have to wear a Gap sweatshirt is the question. <laughs> no, I didn't wear that. No, I was, you know, I, I guess that was the front man to this little operation. But here's the answer to your question, how did I get into the clothing business? There was a guy sort of on this same parking lot, and this was when Venice was a little bit more hippified. You know, there were Grateful Dead vendors and people selling tie-dye and tarot card readers, and this was the Venice Beach of the 80s. And there was a guy uh, sort of a few stalls down who was basically selling old Levi's and leather jackets and thrift store type stuff. I'm like, wow, I kind of dig that idea. I like that. So essentially what I did is I got inspiration from that guy, and I'd start going to um, flea markets and yard sales and little second-hand stores and Salvation Army and started buying Levi jeans, anything from like 50 cents to 2 $3. And I'd buy these old petite print shirts and paisley shirts. And as a kid, my mom had taught me to sew. Remember, I'm the rock and roll kid. So my mom had a little tabletop sewing machine, and what I used to do was, so my favorite band patches, Motorhead, Rainbow, ACDC, on my jacket and make my Levi's as tight as possible by taking them in. So <clears throat> essentially, that's what I did. I'd go buy old Levi's and I'd put patches on them. And this was, I always talk about timing being something that you can't predict, <clears throat> but timing is everything. So this was circa 1989, 1990. And I bought probably like 20, 30 bucks worth of stuff out of, you know, these various flea markets and stuff, and set up a little store on the boardwalk on a Monday that I rented for 10 bucks a day. I think the first day I sold $50 worth of stuff. Second day was about the same. So that was how I got started. But then there was one pivotal thing where I started putting these, buying these old Paisley shirts and cutting them up and putting patches on jeans because I like that sort of pseudo-hippie look. And right around this time, a few things happened. You know, I was going for this Black Crows hippie sort of, patched up jeans vibe. But the racing kicked in really, really big in LA. And they were sort of wearing similar type of patchwork jeans and overalls. So all of a sudden, I started selling quite a lot of patchwork jeans, like where I couldn't actually make them as quick enough. I'd buy the jeans, put the patches on and so on. And then we suddenly realized, hey, we can't sew enough of these things. So we hired one person to put the patches on and one person to sew on. So we'd pay someone $5 to pin the patches on, $5 to sew them. The jeans we were buying for like a dollar or two. But we were selling these jeans for 25 to 35 bucks. Right. And, you know, it went from five pairs to 10 pairs to 20 pairs. Then we started wholesaling them to retail stores on Melrose. And one important thing also happened, one sort of just coincidence. One of these sort of raver people were walking down the boardwalk, came in, loved what I was doing in the booth, and said, hey, can you make a cat in the hat hat? And I didn't even know what a cat in the hat hat was. <laughs> I've never heard of Dr. Zeus, and I don't read. But they sort of said, oh, it's a stripy hat, it's like a soappipe hat. So, you know, I went and bought a Dr. Zeus book and realized, oh, it's a floppy sort of soappipe hat. 
So there was a Guatemalan hat stand next to us that would make these Guatemalan tams. Nothing really crazy, but I bought one, took it apart, and made it in velvet. And that was the very first Renaissance hat I ever made. Back into this Black Crows hippie thing. And there was also, at the time, the Renaissance Fair was just starting. So before you know it, I'm making court jester hats. And I got into this Lewis Carroll Mad Hatter top hat thing. And then I made a can of hat hat. And these sold even better than the jeans. Couldn't make them quick enough type of thing. The cat and the hat hat more than the jeans. Cat and the hat hat. But we're doing them both together. Right. And so I started selling stores on the boardwalk down in Melrose. This is 1990. Then we went to a trade. Someone said, you should do a trade show. And I'm like, what's a trade show? So they told me about this trade show in New York. And it was at the Javits Center. And this was 1990. So the first time we went to the trade show, I got a little 10 by 10 booth flew in on a flight, carried all our samples with us, and set up a stall at this trade show. And we were like the hit of the show because no one was doing anything like we were doing back to timing. The very first trade show we went to was this one at Javits Center in New York. And believe it or not, we got an order from Disneyland. And we had 12 styles of hats. And I think Disneyland bought 144 of 10 of the 12 styles. And this was huge. Right. And then within the next year, we not only sold Disneyland, but all the theme parks. Six Flags, Magic Mountain, Universal Studios theme parks. And then the other strange thing that happened is I'd always been into Americana. Captain America, Evil Knievel. Everything was red, white, and blue. And so I started doing these Stars and Stripes patches. I'd buy this printed flag fabric of which, you know, people make the little flags, you know, that you wave around on 4th of July. But I was putting these flags on my jeans, very Americana, and I've always been into that. You know, at the time, it wasn't so much patriotism. It was just, I like red, white, and blue, and I like the American flag. Well, the Gulf War broke out, I think, in 1990 or 91. And all of a sudden, everything was Americana. So we started making an Uncle Sam top hat. All of a sudden, that's selling crazy. So it was a matter of doing things, you know, that no one else was doing at the time when before everyone else was doing it. And this is 1990. So that was the long answer to how I got into the clothing business. It was sort of by accident with an idea that just took off. And you've got to remember, I didn't go to school to learn fashion. My mama just taught me how to sew, but I had an idea. 30-odd years later, 32 years later, or whatever it is now, 30 years later, I guess, there's a common thread that connects the three things that I've done since I've been in America. You know, I'm 52 years old. I spent 19, 20 years in England and the rest in America. So three-fifths of my life has been in LA. The common thread that has connected the three things in my entire time spent in America is just doing things that I enjoy, doing things that I'm passionate about, and doing things that I had no education in, ironically. And those three things would be fashion, the story I just told you about, uh, starting on the boardwalk in Venice, the Porsches that we'll get to, because I think what I did was timing-wise was kind of important. And then property that I ended up buying and developing, which sort of enabled me to own more Porsches than I ever thought I'd own. The three things that, the common bond that connects those three things together are things that I was passionate about, things that I was interested in, and also things that I really had no education in, but things that I worked hard at, never gave up on, you know, all the regular things, dedicated and motivated, all that stuff. I just poured my heart and soul into those three different things over three sort of 10 periods of my life. But they all blended together. Do you so think it's possible that. that, you know, other people out there could take, take a lesson from that? And just everybody's got a passion, but a lot of people are doing things that they don't want to do. 
you think it for would be sure. worth it for people to take the risk and, and try and do some different things? Yeah, for sure. I mean, people ask me that all the time, and that'll lead into, I did a TED Talk five years ago in 2014. And the TED Talk, essentially, the story of it was go with your gut feeling. And the people from TED Talk approached me, I think it was on the back end of the Urban Outlaw film, and they said, hey, we think you'd be great for a TED Talk. And I said, what's a TED Talk? I honestly did not even know what a TED Talk was. And they sent me a few examples, and I said, okay, I'll do it. You know, how bad can it be? But it was a step out of my comfort zone. It was a real fear for me, for me because remember, I'm that kid that left school at 19. The TED Talk generally tends to be some someone giving a talk that has some education, or that was how I saw it. So they said, you should come down and uh, basically run through your TED Talk. And I'll ramble on about this story, because I think it's an important answer to your question. Sure. So my TED Talk was at UCLA on a Saturday. And I went down there on a Friday afternoon after lunch, and I rambled on for about 40 minutes telling the story of my life, kind of like I told you up to that point. And they said, that's great, but that just took you 45 minutes, just like I think we spoke for 30 up to this point. And they said, you can't go over 18 minutes with your TED Talk. You know, we have 18 other speakers or whatever it was. I think it was 20 speakers, 18, whatever it was. They said, you've got to narrow it down to 18 minutes. We suggest you go back home and basically script out your life. So I left UCLA. This is probably now 3 o'clock on a Friday afternoon. LA rush hour traffic, right? By the time I get back to downtown, it's 4 or 5 o'clock. I start writing out my life story. Born Sheffield, 1967. Left school, 15. Went to America, 19. Blah, blah, blah. And I'm walking around the loft trying to recite my story into an 18-minute package. And it just became really awkward because I don't work off a script, and I couldn't script my life into an 18-minute format. And finally, you know, I'm stuttering around and stammering around, and there's no flow to my story when I'm trying to script it. So I went, fuck it, I'm just going to wing it. And that was really stressful for me because I think my talk on the Saturday the next day was right before lunchtime. So I'm listening to the morning speakers. I guess it's 20 minutes, so there's three an hour. So there's probably nine or ten before me. And everyone's talking about things I don't understand from a highly educated point of view. Molecular studied this. And I, I didn't even understand what they were talking about. And I'm at UCLA at Royce Hall with 500 people. And they're talking on a stage and it's broadcast. And I'm pretty nervous because, remember, I'm the kid that left school at 15 with no education. I'm out of my comfort zone here. So I walk up on stage, and for the first 30 seconds, I'm a little nervous because I'd never spoken in front of public before. I'd done that film, but to me, being the great guy that he is, he basically uh, edited the good bits down and made me look good on the film. Now I'm in front of 500 people talking live. You know, I'm thinking, oh, I don't want to stutter and stammer. So 30 seconds in, I think I walk out, hi, I'm Magnus Walker, blah, blah, blah. I crack a little joke, everyone laughs, and then I relax into this TED Talk. And I go one minute over, it takes 19 minutes, and then a month later, the TED Talk comes out. And then something strange happens. People start coming up to me. And people have come up to me before for various things, clothing, cars, film, Porsche, whatever. But I start getting emails and people coming up to me in strange places. And I would say, 95% of the people that have watched the TED Talk, and I think now it's over 7 million views, more than anything I've ever done, 95% of them had no idea who I was, weren't car people, aren't car people, but they saw some sort of spark of my story. My story was just me telling about living life, but I guess I didn't realize that a lot of people, I was taking risks, a risk leaving Sheffield, going to America. So the common thread that started coming from the TED Talk was, 
basically, hey, I was really inspired by your story. I'm going down this path in life. And these are generally mostly people that are either in a job that they don't like, a career that they don't like, or have just started a journey of university, college, whatever. But they're not really into it. But they think they should do it because <clears throat> their parents said you have to be a doctor, lawyer, some sort of profession. But what a lot of people really want to do is make candles or distill bourbon or build cars in their backyard, whatever that hobby is. And I've had more people come up to me from the TED Talk and say, hey, you've inspired me to think outside the box. And I swear to God, a lot of people have said, hey, I've quit my job and started doing whatever it is they want to do. And I'm happier than I've ever been. So I think that's the long answer to your story is, you know, people do have a fear, a fear of failure. So a lot of times people don't do things they want to do because they'll say to the buddy, hey, I've got this great idea. I'm thinking of making a three-legged pant. And the buddy's going to go, that's a stupid idea. No one's ever going to buy that. You shouldn't do that. So a lot of people, you know, fail before they start because they ask other people's advice. My thing had always been, you know, go with your gut feeling. Name of the TED Talk. If it feels right, do it. Like moving to America at an early age just felt right. Everything I've done basically goes on a gut feeling of, it either feels right or it doesn't. And generally, if it feels right, it also feels a little bit scary and very intimidating. But then that, that then becomes the challenge to overcome. So I think, you know, that's the one teachable element is it's pretty simple, you know, but a lot of people, you know, well, how's it going to work? Well, my thing always is I don't really worry about that. I just dive in and figure it out as I go along. You know, I'd never been the master plan type of career service, you know, where do you see yourself in five years, 10 years? What's your 20-year master plan? I had no idea, and I'm still kind of that way. You know, I don't really know where I'm going to be next month. You know, I travel all over the world now, but I book one-way tickets because I don't know when I'm coming back. Right. And that's my theory. You know, I don't, I don't have that master plan. I think that's enabled me to sort of, you know, change direction. You know, when you come to the fork in the road, do you go left, right, or straight? But if you don't have a plan knowing which way you're supposed to go, you can sort of get lost, get found, kind of like what you were talking about with the get out and drive, get out of your comfort zone thing. And I think sometimes not having, I think people restrict themselves into a box, whatever their 5, 10, 20 year plan is. You know, they restrict themselves into that box. For me, I was able to do the three things I talked about earlier because one sort of led into the other, but the common bond was the passion that kept them together. Like when we bought that building in downtown LA, in uh, well, we bought it, almost 20 years ago. At the time, people thought we were crazy. Now, I'd rented a loft and a warehouse before that and, you know, paying someone else's mortgage for six years seemed sort of crazy. But when we bought that building in 2000, people said, this is a bad idea. And we were like, nah, nah, it's a great idea. We're going to combine the loft we're renting and a warehouse we're renting into one building we own. So we bought a, you know, 1902, 26,000 square foot building which enabled us to do all the things that I've spoke about up to this point, the clothing, the Porsches, the property. And we accidentally fell into the film location business along the way. That was something that we didn't plan. It wasn't like, let's go buy a building and get into the film location business. We bought this old building, and I like projects. You know, The building was a little bit like the clothing, was a little bit like the cars. You know, It needed a restoration job, but we could add our own personality to it. And because we sort of built our dream, live, work, loft, live upstairs, work downstairs, you know, it had a lot of character, had a lot of soul, had a lot of personality. And that was how we accidentally fell into the film location business from an article in the LA Times that came out right after 9-11 in 2001. 
we got a phone call. Hey, would you be interested in renting the loft for a music video? And the first thing we ever did was a Missy Elliott music video. And that was 18 years ago. And that taught us everything we need to know about the film location business in one day. You know, it started out as a 12-hour shoot, which became a 20-hour shoot. We gave an inch. They took a mile. Oh, yeah. And, they, and then we made a boatload of money. You know, the long story is the day started 6 a.m. on a Friday morning and ended 4 a.m. on a Saturday morning, 22 hours later. And I was literally, fuck it, I'll never do that again. But once the dust had settled and we realized how much money we made in that 22 hours, it was like, wow, I guess we'll do that again. Yeah, for, the for next sure. Two, for the next two, three years, we sort of lived and worked and filmed in that building and probably did 15, 20 days of filming a year. Super selective part-time. Just the novelty of waiting for someone to finish a film shoot or renting a hotel to move out for a, a night, that wore off. So here's a pivotal point to this story. In 2004, we did this Bruce Willis movie called The Whole, the Whole Ten Yards. And essentially, they rented the building for a month, relocated us to a house in the Hollywood Hills, and paid us a shitload of money. And that was when the light bulb flashed. And I thought, wow, I bet if we didn't physically live in the building, we could film all the time. So we took a leap of faith, moved out of our comfort zone, and literally moved out of the building in 2004, not knowing if we'd ever move back in. Rented a house in the Hollywood Hills. Initially for six months, it became two years. After two years, it was like, wow, we're spending a lot of money renting a house in the Hollywood Hills. So bought another loft downtown. But the moral to the story is, if it wasn't for that one film uh, where it sparked the interest of, hey, let's move out of the building, we'll take every filming that comes, that was when we went from 15, 20 days of filming to at our peak doing over 150 days of filming. Everything from reality shows to TV to movies, right. commercials, music videos. So it's a case of opportunity. People sometimes say to me, oh, you're lucky. I go, no, I'm not lucky. You know, you build your own luck. People didn't say we were lucky when we bought the building three years ago. What right. they said was, you were crazy. And we said, no, we're not crazy. We're just doing something that feels right. We hadn't bought that building. We'd have never got into the film location business. The film location business was essentially what enabled me to get more Porsches than I ever owned and it enabled us to do the clothing, the filming, and the cars all under one roof. Now, fast forward almost 20 years, here's the real kicker. The arts district where the building is had always been sort of this former industrial zone back at the time. I guess in hindsight, it was cheap, but when we bought the building in 2000, I'd never owned anything, so it seemed expensive at the time. Fast forward 20 years, what was once this little sleepy arts district with people renting studios and, you know, creating art, hence the arts district, you know, now it's become like Soho. Literally, Spotify is 100 yards from where I'm at. Warner Brothers is now relocated their corporate headquarters into half a million square feet, 400 yards away. Soho House has just opened a hotel. This is the icing on the cake is what I've been building over the past 10 years of loft condo conversion, coffee shop, CrossFit, studios, art galleries, and gyms. All right, before we get back to Magnus, let's take a moment to talk about Petrobox. Petrobox is a monthly subscription service specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and all sorts of great stuff to be sent right there to your doorstep. There's actually two levels of subscriptions to choose from. 
The PetroBox Basic costs less than 20 bucks a month at $19.95, while the PetroBox Premium gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out over at MyPetroBox.com and use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. So before we get into the car stuff, I want to cap it off with this. What perspective has this given you when you look back at your life today? I think the perspective is, you know, for me, you know, it's just part of this journey. Sheffield, you never forget where you come from. I love going back to visit Sheffield. I just went there probably six weeks ago for a few days to visit family. I have a tattoo that says made in Sheffield, England. Sheffield was the foundation. It gave me the character, the drive. I think, you know, everything that sort of blossomed from there, that seed was already, already sown. That creativity was already there, but there was no release for it, no way to get it out. America being the land of opportunity, the ability to do, you know, whatever it is you want to do, which wouldn't have happened in Sheffield. You know, I don't even think it would have happened if I moved to London. So, you know, I don't really know the answer to your question, the perspective it gives you, but for me, it was like just the ability to do whatever you want to do and live that dream without yeah. any restrictions. So you know, speaking, without any more on, speaking more on timing, um, tell me a little bit about your first contact with Tamir Moscovici. How did that all come about? It was pretty simple. It was probably January 2012. Uh, basically, you know, you probably know this, I'm sure. You know, I've seen some articles in some magazines, the thread on Pelican, the early S registry. You know, Tamir, commercial film director, for those that don't know, Porsche enthusiast, living in Canada. He, you know, been shooting a lot of essentially Bud Light commercials. And, you know, he was getting a little bit, I guess, um, lacked motivation with that stuff. So he made a documentary on Indy called Between the Walls, and it was a documentary shot at the Toronto Indy Grand Prix. Tamir reached out to me and said, hey, you know, I'm a Porsche guy. I've seen the stuff you've got going. I think there's more to your story than what's already out there. How would you feel about making a video? I remember I'd been in the film location business up to this point for 10, 12 years. So I'd seen a lot of filming, but I'd never been filmed. People had approached me, hey, let's make a let's make a film of you driving. I'd been approached before Tamir, but no one ever really clicked. It didn't really interest me. There was something about Tamir. We literally, there was a couple of, I think one or two emails, and I called him. We had a conversation. This was January 2012. And for me, it was like, fuck it. Something just clicked with him. And he said, hey, I'll fly down next month in February. And he basically, this was his passion project. So he flew from Toronto to L.A., essentially on frequent flyer miles. I had a small but very talented team of five or six people. But basically, he got for pennies on the dollar because somehow they weren't working that particular week. And he hadn't worked with them either. But he hired this photographer called Anthony Arden, who was a DP. And for me, I had no idea what I was getting into. It was just like, fuck, how bad can this be? We're going to make some, you know, going to make a little film. The initial goal was it was going to be a short three to five minute short YouTube documentary. So Tamir came down, I think on a, what was it, a Friday? Saturday? I think he came on a Friday. I met him for the first time on a Saturday and we started shooting. It was like Friday, Saturday, Sunday, something like that, Monday. And uh, I just went with the flow, you know, and one thing led to another. And um, he had a vision at the time. I didn't really know what his vision was. I was just like, this will be cool. I can talk about cars. And uh, essentially, he was there for four days. We got on pretty well. 
and then he disappeared. So that was February <laughs> of 2012. He disappeared and said, you won't hear from me for a couple of months. And I'm like, okay. Samir went back to his real job in Toronto, something that actually paid the bills because they are, you know, no one was paying him to make Urban Outlaw. But the interesting part of the story was in June of 2012, he released a three-and-a-half-minute trailer. And at this time, I wasn't even really on social media. But one of my buddies said, hey, you should get on Facebook. You know, and at the time, I didn't even have an iPhone. So someone had sent me up on Facebook and, or, yeah, sent me up on Facebook, but I didn't post anything. Anyway, this trailer came out for um, Urban Outlaw, June of 2012. And Top Gear picked it up straight away on the first day. And I remember having a conversation with Tamir. He'd sent it to me, and it was really pretty cool. I really dug it. But we had no idea what would happen. We didn't know if 500 people were going to see it, 5,000 people were going to see it, or 50,000 people were going to see it. I think but it's important to note that the time period that this came out. So this is like seven or eight years ago. And now car videos are pretty commonplace. But back then, something like that, that, that was that well filmed about somebody interesting with cool cars, that was not very common back then outside of something like Top Gear. No, we didn't realize it, but I got to tell you the Top Gear part of the story because it's pretty pivotal. My buddy just sent me up on Facebook. He goes, you should get on Facebook. You know, I'm like, okay, whatever. I wasn't really into it, but this is what happened. Let's say the um, trailer came out on a Monday, right? I come into work the next day on a Tuesday, and at the time I might have had, I don't know, 500 people following me on Facebook, and these were probably people that knew me through Pelican. All of a sudden, the next day, I literally had several thousand Facebook friends request. <laughs> and I'm like, what is this? I didn't know what was going on. Because I didn't realize Top Gear had posted the clip to the trailer. So the clip within the first 24 hours went viral. Top Gear picked it up, and then every other automotive website at that time picked it up. So I remember the next day I'd come in, and I'd have like 500 friend requests from Germany and Spain and blah, blah, blah. So within like the first day or two, you know, I'd hit the 5,000 follower limit on Facebook and I had to move the account from whatever the friend account was to the next one. So yeah, we weren't ready for that. We hadn't anticipated that thing getting 50,000 views in next to no time. And then it just kind of spiraled, right? You know, it caught, it's like wildfire. Because what Tamir had done was, you know, he'd made something that was really cinematic. So that trailer came out in June, and then the film came out. It debuted October 15, 2012. So as of last week, it's been out seven years. And the great thing about it was, you know, we made, just made this little film, which became a 32-minute documentary, which, to me, being a film guy, he put it into some film festivals. And it got accepted into the Raindance Film Festival in London, which essentially, our joke, is the rainy version of Sundance. <laughs> so we literally flew to England. And, you know, the film premiered at Piccadilly Circus on a Saturday night to a sold-out crowd. I had a little gathering of friends before, uh, that met before in a pub, and we all walked over to the uh, Piccadilly Circus cinema to see the film. Tamir was there, and Liam from The Prodigy came, and a few sort of pen pals that I hadn't met, but these were Porsche people that were following on Pelican or Early S Registry. My, uh, what became my buddy Joost Hermes came over from the Netherlands. So there was a lot of anticipation for this film. The film came out and uh, got sort of, I guess, critical acclaim. It won some cinematic awards. But essentially what it did is it changed a little bit Tamir and my life because Tamir went on to have a pretty successful film career directing car commercials. And 
uh, within a week of Urban Outwell, two weeks of Urban Outwell coming out, I went to SEMA for the first time in Vegas, a big aftermarket car show. And this is a pivotal part to the Urban Outlaw story. First day of SEMA, nine, it's like 8.30 in the morning. The show doesn't open till nine. I'm waiting to get in. And you've got to remember, you know, I the funny part to the SEMA story was I borrowed someone's pass to go because I wasn't registered as an exhibitor. So I'm, I'm essentially sneaking into SEMA on a Bob Smith nameplate pass. And I'm waiting to get in. Uh, it's a true story. I get a phone call, and the phone call goes like this. Hey, it's Robert Angelo. I'm calling from the Jay Leno uh, Garage Show. Jay just saw of an outlaw, really liked it, would love to invite you down on the show. What do you want to do? Do you want to come? And this is on a Tuesday. I said, wow, that's awesome. Yeah, I can be there. When do you want to shoot? He goes, how about Saturday? I go, sure, I'll be there on Saturday. So I do see him for a day, fly back to L.A. and Saturday I'm on the Jay Leno Garage Show. And uh, that sort of opened the door to everything else that has happened. week after that, I get a little letter from Porsche with a shield uh, for the garage, Porsche shield. And on the back of it, it just said, hey, uh, really like the film. Here's something for your garage. And that opened up my relationship with Porsche. And over the past seven years, it's been a whirlwind you know, travel around the world, going to events and car openings and drives and things like that. But none of that would have happened if it wasn't for Tamir's film. You know, he took a leap of faith with that film. I basically thought, how bad can this be? If I hadn't done that, you know, this is back to saying yes more than I say no. But yet, something clicked about Tamir. I didn't know what the film would be, what his vision would be. But I think what people relate to, the relatability to that film is, it's not written. Porsche is the vehicle that takes you on the journey through the film. But the film essentially is just the story of my life. And I think that's the relatability to the film. The film led to the TED Talk two years later. The TED Talk led to the book that came out three right. years after. But if it wasn't for the film, I don't think any of that would have happened. Right. So, you know, you just can't predict, you know, we didn't have a master plan of make the film and change the world. And we didn't change the world, but we made a film and it changed our world, you know. When you made that film, were you ready to get thrown into – obviously, you probably weren't ready to get thrown into it. There's a lot of people that when you do something like that, they start judging you and they start looking at what you're doing and, and critiquing everything that you're doing because whether they're envious of the sex success or whatever. And I have to admit, I, I was one of them when I saw the film. I'm like, yeah. who, who is this guy? Where did he come from? Who gives him the right to, to say these yeah. things? Why are we believing this guy? Who is this? How did that kind of, you must've been used to that a little bit with some of the fashion stuff, but when it came to cars, how did that kind of influence you? Well, obviously we weren't anticipating that, but it's kind of interesting because the clothing company series that I'd done before that started on the boardwalk in Venice, that became pretty big in its own field. You know, we were outfitting everyone from Alice Cooper to Madonna. So we had some exposure and recognition there. And by that, I mean, supplying bands, being on the cover of, magazines, doing interviews. So I'd had some fashion exposure, but none of that was negative. The car world, you know, obviously I was aware before on these threads how everyone's a specialist in their own little niche, right? Everyone's a big fish in their own little pond. Everyone's going to critique you and tell you that's the wrong shade of cat plating. So when the film came out, it was a little bit like, wow, we weren't really expecting that. But, you know, it was just like you get irritated, but I never fueled the fire. You know, I never commented on those negative posts. I never gave energy to those people that were 
basically, you know, trying to beat me up. You know, the internet tough guys that are in the mum's basement, that you know, are basically saying, you know, everything that you are, you're a talentless, useless, dirty, long-haired, smelly, whatever. Right? Not one of those people ever came up to my face and said that. Right. They were all hiding behind the computer. Or when I'd see them at car shows, no one ever said anything negative. So, you know, back to that sort of tough northern skin. You know, you've got to remember, my name's Magnus, right? How many Magnuses do you know? So here's another, I think, important lesson for people to learn. For me, growing up as a kid in a sea of David, John, Paul, and Andrews, I got picked on a lot as a kid. But, you know, people would tease me about my name. You know, and you got to remember, kids are pretty brutal with stuff like that. Yeah, they're that. ruthless. So I got picked on at an early age. At an early age, I used to stutter. So, you know, before I became the rock and roll guy, when I was 10, 11, 12, I had quite a bit of success running. I told you that. So I was kind of used to, you know, being in the limelight a little bit, even though I grew up in this somewhat depressed northern town. I had some success. I had that certificate from Sebastian Coe when I was 11. Remember, I started the conversation with a pat on the back, well done. That made me feel empowered about something that I'd done. And it also put me in a little bit of a spotlight at an early age. So when Urban Outlaw came out, I was 45 years old. Yeah, it was kind of irritating, people being super negative. But it wasn't the first time. And back to the name, in the sea of David, Paul, John, and Stevens, having a name like Magnus got you picked on. But, you know, it's kind of like the Johnny Cash song, a boy named Sue, right? It builds character. So I had that inner strength, which I think came from that northern upbringing. I think it came from that dedication of doing something on my own that, yeah, it was annoying, but I never bought into it. So, you know, I never sort of fanned the fuel and, you know, put more fuel on that fire. And like I say, no one ever came up to my face and sort of dished me personally. And it was just one of those things. It's kind of like, you know, if people aren't critiquing, you're not doing something right type of story. So I just moved forward and, you know, one thing led to another and then great opportunities came from that. Well, I think like adversity say, breeds, breeds contrast in your life, too. So your life has been full of different contrasts, and I think that's given you, you know, a different perspective. You know, your your tougher upbringing has given you contrast to understand where you are today and why it matters. And, you know, being picked on back then has given you the thick skin and uh, to understand the contrast of these people don't matter. Yeah, I mean, I remember at school getting picked on, and the hardest kid in the school called me out on a fight. And I ended up having a fight with him in the car park of the Hammer and Pincers pub. You know, and I was like the underdog, but this guy was the toughest guy in the school. And I actually won that fight. And I was, I don't know, 13, 14 years old. And there's a real funny part to this story that I've actually never told anybody. But that gave me a lot of confidence that I could beat up the tough guy in school. But I, I'm not saying I'm a tough guy, but that was just one story. But the full circle to that story is, last year I made a film in Sheffield for Porsche, where I drove the white martini turbo the car that started my love affair with Porsche in 1977 as a 10-year-old. Everyone knows that story. And I drove that car last year and made a video. But the real funny part to the story is I went back to the house that I grew up in in Sheffield, the very last house that I ever lived in before I left there in 1987. And my mum and dad had sold that house. My dad passed away um, right after Urban Outlaw came out in 2012. So I hadn't been in this house since I left it in 1987. And this was 31 years later. The real full circle to this story that I'm telling you is the person that lived in the house now, his mum, his mum that's living in the house that bought my old house was the guy, the kid that I had to fight with. <laughs> You've got to be kidding me. I'm not kidding you. 
And I had the fight with that kid when I was 13, 14. And his mum bought my old house. Now, the kid that I had the fight with, he wasn't there, but his brother, who was in my brother's year, was there. And he remembered the fight. He goes, yeah, you beat up my little brother. So I, there's no real point to this story other than that was just, it's a story that happened. It's a full circle story. So, you know, I don't really know what the point I'm making is. No, it's okay. It's, it's, it's serendipitous. It's, it's interesting for sure. Um, so taking Porsche completely out of it, what is it about motoring and driving in general that is so important to you? Well, it's simple. It's the freedom to get out there and explore. You know, and I've been able to drive all over the world. And some of my greatest drives, you know, have been in Porsches. Some have been in non-Porsches. For me, I always say it doesn't matter what you drive. Just get out and drive. It's the freedom to go wherever you want. Open road, cover the senses, that story. But it's also the people. You know, I say we all speak Porsche because we're Porsche people, right? But I think the common bond that connects all car people together, whether you're a Fast and Furious sport import tuna guy, European sports car guy, it's the passion for whatever the car is. You just pick your drug of choice, your religion, whether it's Porsche or Ferrari or whatever it may be. And then it's, you know, separate of the car and the drive. I think it's the people. It's, it's the community, the bond. Nothing's better than the Porsche community. Because ultimately, without the people, whatever car it is, is just an appliance that never gets driven, right? The people are the ones that utilize that vehicle, that car, to go on the journey. Make those what I call memorable moments, the history of the car. So people come up to me all the time, and it falls into two categories. They all want to show me that car. And the people that have got a car with no miles on it, hey, check out my 500-mile, never-driven, whatever. I've got no interest in that. The guy that's got a couple hundred thousand miles on whatever it is he's got, whether it's his Golf Jetta or his 911 or his 356, I'm interested in that story. So, you know, for me, that's what's great about the car. It's the community. It's the experience. It's the journey. It's the excitement. And I've done some pretty cool drives. You know, I drove across Australia last year in a Porsche um, Cayenne. And, you know, that's something I couldn't have done in a 911. You know, it wasn't the fastest thing I've ever done, but it was the most memorable. I've done drives in Colombia, in Mexico. Of all the things that you've done, which if you had to take one memory with you from all the trips, journeys, drives, the one drive that you could remember if you had to forget the rest, what would it be? Well, it's a great one. It might actually be the drive across Australia, believe it or not. Why is that? What was special about that that really moved you? Well, most most of it was off-road. You know, Australia is a big continent. When you get there, everything's around the coast. In the middle is absolutely nothing. You know, no cell phone reception, unfamiliar environment. You know, started in Brisbane, drove straight across Simpson Desert. I'd never driven in the desert. Over Ayers Rock seeing kangaroos on the road, <laughs> drove into this one town, Uluru, which was just, it was kind of like an abandoned, forgotten town full of Aborigines living in basically beat-up trailers with roaming dogs. It was like Mad Max. It was kind of like being in Mad Max. So, you know, I've done a lot. Maybe that's the first one that springs to mind. I've, I've always wanted to drive across there. We had Elspeth Beard on the podcast uh, about a year ago to talk about her journey on her motorcycle. And, she talked about being in the outback and I've talked about wanting to be there. And my buddies from Australia are like, no way you cannot do that trip alone. It's just too dangerous. I mean, parts of it are pretty boring. You know, this was a Porsche experience world tour thing. So essentially it was 10 Cayenne. Six of them were K 
customer cars who were basically paying for the experience. One was a press car. I was in there, and then there were three support cars. So we turned up. Uh, I'd never heard of Big Red Simpson Desert. I'd never heard of it. But we turned up there, and uh, basically people looked at us and said, I swear to God, you're crazy. You'll never make it. You know, how many days are you trying to do it? And we said two. We said most prep vehicles do it in three. And the guy that was doing the expedition, he'd bit off more than he can chew because the day started around 6 a.m. and finished at midnight. So it was 18-hour days with novices who had no experience driving across the desert. You know, and it, for me, it's a fine line between are you going to make it? Yes, you are. And are you going to make it? No, you're not. Now you're stuck in a sand dune. <laughs> so, you know, that probably was the most memorable one because it was the most challenging, you know, literally a minimum 14, 16-hour days driving in the dark on a dirt road, getting stuck, having to dig yourself out or be dug out or be towed out. It's a huge you contrast know, to driving around in Los Angeles or up in the mountains of Los Angeles. Yeah, you know, you know, we started the conversation with you talking about commuting in. I said, oh, you talked about driving, and I said, that's a commute. You know, I live in L.A. I love L.A. I've gone around the world. I always say L.A. has the accessibility to the best driving roads in the world. It's a familiar story, but the ocean, desert, mountain, you can do that in a day in L.A. You can do it in a half a day. You know, other places may have one or two of those. They might have desert or mountain or ocean, but L.A.'s got them all. You know, everything from, like, Palm Springs to Lake Arrowhead to, to the crest from the ocean to the desert to the mountains. Sure. But, you know, I break driving down to two things because people ask me all the time about autonomous cars and hybrid this and Porsche electric that, and I go, well, this is how I break it down. I'm living in downtown LA. If I worked in Santa Monica, which is 18 miles away, that journey takes about an hour to an hour and a half to go 18 miles in Russia. That is not what I call a drive. That's what I call a commute. A drive is me going up Angeles Crest Highway on a Tuesday morning when no one's around. You know, I don't necessarily drive a lot of miles, but I would say 90% of my drives are pure pleasure. I walk to work when I'm in L.A. So I don't need to drive. So for me, i got a garage full of cars. It's all about variety. But drive is the emotional, you said it, meditation experience. Some people go to the gym to work out. I like to drive scenario. covers all the senses. That's a drive. That's the freedom. Stuck in traffic, that's a commute. So that's kind of how I separate those two from I don't commute, I drive. I don't drive a million miles, but it's quality over quantity when it comes to those miles and memorable moments. The smiles per mile is what I call it. Right, right. So two more questions for you, kind of simple ones. When you were a kid, you wrote a letter to Porsche. Everybody kind of knows that story about you writing a letter. Hey, I'd like to design a car. And how would that kid feel today knowing that eventually he would, if you could tell him that he was going to have a Hot Wheels of his car someday, what do you think he would say? Well, that's kind of the question Samir asked me in Urban Outlaw, and I answer it there. I hope they'd be smiling. So that was the answer before the film came out. After the film came out, Porsche actually wrote me a letter back. Hey, we've seen the film. We'd love to invite you to the factory. I'd never gone to Porsche. You know, it wasn't on my radar. I never owned a new Porsche. You know, so the answer to your question is, you know, I would not have believed it if someone said, hey, in 45 years, 40 years, you're going to be doing stuff with Porsche and you're going to have your own Hot Wheels. The Hot Wheels came out organically. It was one car, now I'm up to 25, half of them are non-Porsche. All of that really happened through the film, everything that I've done, the SEMA, the Mobile One, the MoMo, whatever it is. So, you know, if you said to me, the answer to your question, I think, 40 years ago, I might not have believed it, but I think that 
what I would say is never give up on your dream, right? I always wanted to own a Porsche, but I never thought I would own one. But, you know, somewhere in the back of my mind, that dream came true, whether I made it come true or it just happened. So I think, you know, what I would say is, hey, never give up on the dream. That so, would be the end. So last question for you. What makes a car cool? I know it's a broad question, but just generally, not just Porsche, just anything. What makes a car cool? When you look at it, you go, that car is cool. What is it about well, that car? It, well, it starts with it has to look cool. Now, what is cool? You know, is, is a Golf Rabbit cool? Yeah, Golf Rabbit's cool. Is an MGB GT cool? Yeah, that's cool. Is a Volkswagen Beetle cool? Yeah. But a Volkswagen Beetle's cool. You know, it gets even cooler when you take the bumpers off and lower it and put bigger wheels on it. So what makes the car cool has to be something visual to begin with because that's the first reference point. You see it, right? I just bought that 914 a week ago. You know, that's a cool car, the 914. It's not the first one I've owned. But what was cool about that car was the door, and I essentially bought it for the door. You know, it's a base model 1.7914. So it drives like an old clapped-out bug. There's no power. It doesn't shift good. doesn't stop good. But what was cool about it? The door. And I bought the car for the door because I've been wanting to do this art concept car for some time. And I didn't really know what to do it on. Part of me wanted to do it on a Saab 900 Turbo. The first car I ever bought was a 1977 Toyota Corolla in 1988 in L.A. for 200 bucks. That's a cool car. So that's a car on my radar that I want to do a outlaw Toyota Corolla, my style. So what makes the car cool, I think, ultimately, it has to look cool to begin with. has to have some sort of reference point for me as to something that came before or something that is visually stimulating. So I think that's, I could ramble on forever, but I think that's a short answer to me what makes a car cool. You know, money doesn't make a car cool. You know, this 914 that I'm doing, it's going to be a budget build, kind of like that 78 SC that I did. You know, uh, I'm not really so much into new cars. Like, you know, new hypercars to me are not cool. But to a lot of people, yeah, they're cool. Well, they haven't and earned it yet. They, they got to yeah. earn it. Yeah. You know, I've driven everything up to a Pagani wire, and I wouldn't want one. But yeah, I'd kind of want a 1977 Toyota Corolla. To me, that is cool. Yeah. You know, it's the uh, unexpected cool, right? So, you know, and it's here, people drinking Kool-Aid force-fed down the throat as, this is cool, product, whatever, right? Air-cooled Porsches, cool. You know, to me, it's like, water-cooled Porsches are cool. You know, my daily driver is in uh, 78928. You know, to me, it's all about variety. But something has to resonate. Uh, what is cool to one person is not necessarily cool to another. For sure. You know, an old an old beat-up Dodge Dart rusting on the street in New York. There's a 1969 Dodge Dart Swinger. That, to me, is super cool. Well, so, it's got a story to tell. You know that that car has, has a story. There's something there. There's something to learn. There's something to experience. When you think about a new hypercar, what, what is it other than feeling your guts get sucked into your head? There's really nothing else there. Yeah, to me, what makes things cool is character and soul and personality. And I think that covers a lot of older cars because new cars don't have personality. That develops over time, right? Right. It's like rust. It develops over time. Yeah, well, we'll see what becomes cool. Whatever is made today, eventually, you know, in 10, 15 years, we'll, we'll see what, what ends up being cool. Magnus, I th thank you so much for all your time. I mean, this is it's been my pleasure talking to you and... Um, is there anything else you wanna wanna mention before I let you go? I think that covers it. Make the most out of every moment. Love the one you with. Yeah, absolutely. I think man. that's my message.
Love the one you with. I love it. I love it. Thanks, man. I really appreciate your time today. I, I look forward to bumping into you one of these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we, we actually need to hang out. You and I have sort of moved in similar circles, similar taste levels, no similar people, but I've never met. So if, you, if and when you make it to L.A., let's go drive together. Sounds good. Take care of yourself, man. All right, man. And thank take, you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. Appreciate it. Bye.